transition from stage to screen, A Streetcar Named Desire retained its long-running Broadway cast with a single exception, the role of Blanche Dubois, which passed from Jessica Tandy to Vivian Lee. Like Blanche, Lee was the odd woman out. A symbol of the glories of the studio system, married to the symbol of English stage acting, her classical training ran contrary to that of her method-trained co-stars. Thus to the clash of wills between Blanche and Stanley Kowalski was added a clash of acting styles, and the struggle between the death of old Hollywood and the birth of Brando and the new. Which principle, Blanche's fantasy or Stanley's realism, makes for superior art? Can the conflict between magic and truth ever be resolved? And is all realism a form of cruelty? Today we're talking about Tennessee Williams' A Streetcar Named Desire. This is Aaron Alonick. This is Wes Alwyn. And you're listening to Subtext. So Wes, you know I love Nichols and May, and I try to bring them in <laughs> whenever I can. Mm-hmm. One of their sketches that I don't think was ever recorded, so there's no record of this other than what reviewers and people at the time have written down. They used to do send-ups of various literary styles, and one of their most popular was a parody of Tennessee Williams. And basically, it was Mike Nichols giving a lecture as a Tennessee Williams figure, but he was renamed Alabama Glass. (laughs) And he would give this lecture and describe this new play. And in it, the heroine had taken to drink, prostitution, and putting on airs. (laughs) And, um, And her husband, Raul, had killed himself on being unjustly accused of not being a homosexual. <laughs> so, <laughs> I don't know. Thinking about that kind of made me think about how this one time I was watching Streetcar. It was right before the end. Blanche is in the middle of her, her breakdown. Everyone I was watching it with was like super invested in this, super into it. And someone walked into the room at that moment, saw what was happening on screen and started laughing. <laughs> and I think the absurdity of Tennessee Williams is something that we don't, I don't know, maybe people talk about this a lot, but like there is a lot of suspended disbelief, I think, that goes into watching it or rather like you kind of you kind of sink in like into a hot tub, you know, and once you're in, you're like used to it. Mm-hmm. But to someone who's just passing by during a heightened moment of gothic camp <laughs> who who hasn't been properly primed for it it's a little bit silly i don't know if you agree with that gothic camp i really like that <laughs> you know i never thought about it that way exactly i guess i think one part of it is sort of blanche dubois has kind of become a cultural meme mm. so if someone is new to the film or the play and and you return to it you return to it as if it's someone might think if they didn't know that this was the origin of that type of character, they might think of it as a cliche. We we can always ask the question of whether, is it Blanche who's kind of over the top or is it Tennessee Williams? In some ways, right, she gives him a, a nice opportunity to, to have someone give cool speeches, right? And to be mm-hmm. like her highfalutingness and her kind of pseudo erudition and, and, wanting to say things fancy all of that stuff lends itself to some really great speeches and turns of phrase for her so it's you know you can see tennessee williams having fun through her and we can also you know we can always ask the same question that we that we typically ask in in one of these episodes which is the extent to which the artist appears in the play through a character or the extent to which there is some sort of commentary at work on the on the role of the artist. Yeah, I I think that this heightened sensibility though is is true of all of his plays. I think Blanche is just like the most recognizable and 
parodyable figure. Didn't Woody Allen do mm-hmm. like a send up of her? Okay, I'm not oh, making that he? up. I think he did. In his recent autobiography, he he calls a streetcar named Desire the perfect play, his favorite huh. and and the perfect play. Uh, did he do a send up? Uh, why I wouldn't do be I surprised. Have this, I hope I hope he did that. <laughs> I have this thing in my mind's ear of him doing a Blanche voice. I don't know. Someone can find that out once we're <laughs> once we release this. They could help us out. Oh, you mean as like a passing joke in one of the films? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, that that does sound very familiar. Yeah. Yeah. She's perfectly suited to <laughs> one of his movies in a way. You know, his uh, there, there's some sort of relationship between the neuroticism of his characters, right, and her her neuroticism or her her hysteria, really. Sure, I think of Blue Jasmine as being maybe something yeah. like that. Kate Blanchett's performance in that. The way you started is not far off from the way I would have started. I thought I might be doing the intro for this. I always procrastinate to the very last minute. I start thinking about a title for the episode sometimes while I'm reading or, or thinking about it. And the phrase, the fate of gentility, that's what came to my mind. Even though I, I'm generally not interested in reading plays as social commentary, except to the extent that I'll re- I want to read back any social implications back into the character. So I, you know, the social stuff for me has implications for, for character and for aesthetics, but of course it's very popular for theorists or literary critics these days to kind of turn literature into a, you know, a vehicle for cultural analysis or sociology or however you want to put it. So I, I bring that up with a different intent. Although I did kind of go down a rabbit hole and I started (laughs) I was thinking about what is Southern gentility and, and just this whole shtick that she has going, right? I wanted to, to think about that and understand that. And I found someone's like master's thesis online. It's called The Assessment of Southern Gentility by British Travelers, 1776 to 1820. Oh, interesting. This is by Chelsea Larson. I might as well give her credit. First of all, it's cool that these travelogues even exist. Um, like there's a guy named Cooper, who wrote some information respecting America. Weld travels through the states of North America. Bernard, retrospections of America, and many, many more. So you get these, uh, these firsthand accounts of what America was like at the time, and in particular the South. And, and there's, uh, these travelogues are, are focused a lot on the extent to which Southerners, whether they have any kind of gentility, right? Because in a way they are, there's a weird thing going on with southern gentility where you have people who are essentially they're not like the british landed gentry but they're doing a poor person's imitation of that not that they're poor these are people who end up having lots of you know enormous amounts of wealth very often although according to these travel writers they're typically not good at managing it and they go through a lot of boom and bust type of cycles mm-hmm. in a way that i think they're trying to to imitate landed gentry so when the colonists came to the united states it really was kind of a leveling thing and they were um there's a opportunity for upward mobility and there you know except for the distinction between slaves and non-slaves there were not a lot of class distinctions and so southern gentility sort of is almost a conscious attempt to restore some of that and i bring this up because one of one of the things that these travelogue writers took note of the thing that they that was most glaring to them was the was southern hospitality 
people in the north stayed in hotels when they traveled in the south it wasn't necessary because if you were an aristocrat or if you if you were part of the upper class it wasn't necessary because people before they would even ask you their name would offer you a place to stay food and lodging hmm. basically this impressed them a great deal i think they thought it was even more pronounced than it would be back in england so I, I didn't get exactly what I thought I would get out of going down this rabbit hole. It occurred to me while reading about hospitality, well, that is precisely this dependency on the kindness of strangers, oh, um, that's which good. is one of the things I wanted to figure out, you know, what mm -hmm. that really what that means and how it's related to Blanche's shtick. And that's something that I that I hope that we're also going to cover in our episode of Gone with the Wind, which I'm now really eagerly <laughs> anticipating the movie version of this. And I, I, just as a side note, like I, I don't know what exactly we want to, we want to put our focus on here. I think the movie is a good focus and we can mention where there are deviations from the play. Good. You know, there good. are a few things cut out and there are a few deviations to meet the moral code of the time, but I don't think they're so numerous that it's, it's going to be hard to mash them together. Yeah. And just for listeners, like there was so much tinkering done too with the, with the dialogue that many sections are taken entirely from the play. Many sections are just like words are changed here and there. And it's, it's kind of maddening. So I ended up just sort of choosing the movie as because I love this movie so much. And I think of it as such an important historical document in a way, but anyway, all of that being said, I think some of that is Brando, right? Just improvising <laughs> some, and some of it is Kazan and William sort of tinkering with things. And, okay. and um, yeah, if you think of this as I do, as the, sort of the ultimate form of stunt casting or the original, the OG stunt casting, having Scarlett O'Hara 12 years later sort of like wash up on the beach as the sole survivor of an earlier age, even though fascinatingly there is one other person who was a cast member on Gone with the Wind in this cast. It was the sailor at the beginning. Mm. He played Bo Wilkes, one of the children of Ashley and Melanie. Anyway, one can imagine this and many, of course, very many contemporary viewers of the film imagine this as Scarlett has lost Tara, you know, insert Tara for Belle Reve. <laughs> yeah. um, and everyone is dead and she is seeking refuge now in the new South. Of course, that timeline obviously doesn't match up, but they mean in terms of, you know, <laughs> thinking about this on some kind of a, uh, of a continuum. So that really interests me and this idea of Southern gentility and, and I, that didn't occur to me what that means. I know very much what that means in Gone with the Wind and how important that is in Gone with the Wind and how, how false it can be, of course, too. And that falseness, I think, comes through as a through line here. But for me, that contrast between the old and the new South, it takes on a different meaning when you have Vivian Lee thrown in with all of these method actors, because mm. now old and new South means old and new Hollywood. That's the thing that for me makes, I mean, Tennessee Williams couldn't have possibly thought of this when he was writing the play. And in a lot of ways, this is my reading of the movie that is my particular idea of how actors' personas inform their roles in ways that they're not even conscious of, and maybe that they don't realize until after the fact. But that clash is what interests me, which is also, in a way, a clash of cultures. And it's about, I think, what we're both getting at here, about the clash between, you know, putting on airs and cutting the rebop, <laughs> mm. as, uh, as Stanley will tell Blanche to do, which is, <laughs> which is one particularly dated line that stuck out to me. 
Yeah, that's interesting because I I looked up some interviews with Vivian Lee and was very surprised by her posh English accent. Oh, you didn't know she was English? <laughs> I might have known at some point, but I hadn't thought about who she was in a long time. And I didn't, this is not ever something I paid a great deal of attention to. Oh my but, gosh, you are so opposite of me. This is like all I know. <laughs> yeah. By the time I looked up the interviews, I knew she was English, but I just didn't expect such a posh mm-hmm. accent. Very. Yeah, it surprised me. And then I went back and I watched this 10-minute YouTube reel of Scarlet scenes from Gone with the Wind. Because mm-hmm. I haven't seen the movie. Ever? I don't think so. If I have, it's been so long. And and, and I'm excited to see it now. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, you know, that's one of my top two We could do movies. it next if you want. This, oh, I would love that. Let's do it next. That. That, makes, that makes sense. Okay. We're working uh, backwards uh, here. Because I am very impressed with Vivian Lee. Well, who could not be? I used I to sit as a kid and just stare at her face. I mean, I thought she was the most beautiful thing. I hate it. Whatever. Anyway, sorry. Continue. She is extraordinarily beautiful, um, as long as you don't put a harsh light on her. <laughs> just kidding. Hey. <laughs> but um, Scarlet's very feisty, right? It's hard not to think about this yeah, transition from Gone with the Wind to Streetcar and to try to think about Blanche as sort of the some sort of broken down version of Scarlet. I can't say much about this until I've seen the movie, but what I saw on that reel was Vivian Lee is playing a much more feisty character who also seems quite, you know, they, they have in common the manipulativeness, but mm-hmm. do you see some continuity there between Scarlet's feistiness and, and Blanche's psychotic dream world thing? <laughs> sure. Yeah. I suppose a lot of Scarlet's, power comes from, you know, she's a, she's a man's woman. We'll say that about Scarlett. And we'll say what that means too. She operates on the same wavelength as men do, or rather she's the kind of woman that has few to no female friends because she's interested in, in grace. So I mean this in the, in, there are lots of degrees of men's women and women's women and all all that sort of thing. But I I mean to say that she's the extreme version of this, not just that she is chummy with men and she gets along with them well, but that she is, I think, fundamentally too competitive and too obsessed with jockeying favor from men to adequately have friendships with other women. In fact, this is one of the tensions of, of Gone with the Wind. And she's very interested in appealing to men and in Scarlett's case, I think this is a way to feel powerful because she knows her effect on men. And it's a way of sort of flexing her superiority because it, with a lot of the men in Gone with the Wind, in fact, almost all of the men with one exception, she's superior to them in a way, right? She's stronger than they are. A lot of them are very weak and they they fold under pressure and she can exert this influence on the basis of extreme personal charm and her kind of flirtatious feistiness and her looks. Mm -hmm. And so Blanche is what happens when that person no longer has the looks part to rely upon and discovers that charm is not enough. Now, I don't think that she has the certain elements maybe of the innate strength that Scarlet has. I mean, Scarlet loses Tara and 
gets it back and, you know, is actually able to make a success of it when other people are not able to make a success of their estates. And she has a real survivor Mm. thing going on. Blanche is obviously not a survivor, but we never see, we never see in Gone with the Wind, a Scarlet that isn't the most gorgeous woman you've ever seen. (laughs) So... And of course, Vivian Lee at 36 in Streetcar had to be kind of made up to look older mm-hmm. and, and to look a little bit ghoulish. I'm taking a long time to say this, but what I'm trying to say is that she's still, so she's still drawing upon these resources and this idea that she is a woman who appeals to men in a certain way, but what's been hollowed out, or rather the, what she would say is, you know, the outside has been tarnished, but the inside is still just as beautiful. In fact, it becomes more and more beautiful with time, as she'll say. But as long as that that veneer has been tarnished, she has lost her ability to make problems go away. <laughs> and mm. uh, the big problem that she has ultimately can't get resolved, though, interestingly, it's because it's not because of her outward appearance. There's that line from Stella at one point, which I find very poignant in a way where Stella says, why are you so sensitive about your age? Blanche, something like that. Why are Mm -hmm. you so sensitive about your age? Which gives you, I think that and several other parts of the play give you a clue that she's overemphasizing the the extent to which her predicament is a product of her aging. She's acting like she's an old maid at 30, or I think she's supposed to be 30, right? Yeah. People may have thought of her that way <laughs> if this were said in, in you know, the, the 1860s. But now that seems like an anachronism. Mm-hmm. And I think people are treating that as an anachronism. And her whole, not that the Southern Belle routine has gone away by the 1940s or, or that there isn't that among certain people, the Southern gentility shtick, like it exists today. You know, I've met Southern Bells, but the way that Blanche does it is extreme enough that I think that's an anachronism as well. Mm-hmm. But you can correct me if I'm wrong. But I, I think that it's so pronounced that people understand that this is kind of a crazy routine. You know, she it's like one step away from her pretending that she's a princess out of King Arthur or something like that. Right. Her focus on appearances and looks are part of her her self-concept and they're they're connected to this idea that the only way she can get a man is to deceive. Mm-hmm. This is actually quite close to where Stella says, why are you so sensitive about your age? This is in scene five. Stanley has just told Blanche that he knows about her past before taking off to the bar. And now Blanche is a nervous wreck and she's talking to Stella and Stella gives her that Coke and Blanche wants a shot in it. You know, a shot never hurt a Coke. <laughs> I love that line. She explains this to Stella by saying she's nervous about Mitch. So Mitch is coming at seven. I guess I'm just feeling nervous about our relations. Down a little bit. I want his respect. And men don't want anything they get too easy. But on the other hand, men lose interest quickly, especially when a girl is over 30. I love all these dashes, by the way, that Tennessee mm. Williams puts in to kind of give the cadence of her speech, you know, like she, you know, a girl's over 30 or whatever. It, what it, to me, it's meant to indicate a pause perhaps or something. Mm-hmm. So they think a girl over 30 ought to the vulgar term is put out. I'm not putting out. Of course, he, he doesn't know. I mean, I mean, I haven't formed him of my real age. And then Stella says, why are you sensitive about your age? Blanche, because of hard knocks, my vanity has been given. 
What I mean is, he thinks I'm sort of prim and proper, you know? She laughs out sharply. I want to deceive him enough to make him want me. So I remembered this word deceive, and then I was doubting myself. So I didn't, that's not the word I was searching for. But yeah, she directly uses that. And then Stella says, Blanche, do you want him? So I was bringing this up because the whole thing about her looks is really related to a more general point of view about how it is she is supposed to go about getting men and the the idea that that in, must involve deceit and the focus on tricking men. She uses the phrase turn the trick at one point. Yeah. Like it's she's a prostitute, but the the idea that this is the way to elicit desire in men. So this is and this is one of the things we'll be trying to figure out this whole streetcar named desire metaphor, which very helpfully is right in the title of the play. <laughs> I, I always depend on the frankness of authors or however you want to put it. Um, <laughs> so I think what we'll have to try to figure out is Blanche's relationship to desire. And in particular, what Stella is suggesting here is that Blanche is kind of divorced from her own desire and very focused on she sort of inhabits the desire of others and thinks that she has to adjust herself to that desire in order to get what she wants which is not completely crazy right there's a lot of mm. like femininity itself is a kind of language that is predicated on that that kind of notion but when it's taken too far, the psychoanalyst might call it hysteria, or if they're Lacanian, a hysterical character structure where the desire of the other becomes so important that it eclipses her ability to comprehend her own desire. So hmm. she is, she loses her own desire, she loses her own will, and all she is is kind of fodder for the will of others, just mere appearance. And what she's trying to do is to control other people's wills and other people's desires instead of uh, using her own desire and, and using that to shape the world around her. And, and this, this is not unrela unrelated to the question of gentility, right? Which we mm -hmm. started with because it, the language of femininity and the language of class are related. You use this word superiority, which I think is very apt. I, I, I've said this before on the podcast, and and it's I think it's worth saying again, which is just that that class distinctions often map onto femininity, masculinity distinctions, where femininity is representative of the upper class, and that's where her conflict with Stanley becomes really relevant. But in particular, gentility is kind of a feigning of class, where it's where it doesn't really fully exist, right? Because they're not really English-landed gentry. Right. It's amazing how, how parallel this runs to my own particular interest in clashes of acting styles here and the gentility of classical training and the theatrical tradition versus the method tradition, which is... Maybe I should just say a little bit about the, about the actual, the, the literal differences between those things. So Vivian Lee, who was... English and really considered herself a stage actress primarily, though I think she's better on film from contemporary accounts of, of her stage acting, oddly enough. And she's married to, in real life, was married to Laurence Olivier, who of course is like, you know, the representative of the classical tradition. And in fact, before she played Blanche on screen, she played Blanche in a West End production mm. of Streetcar directed by Laurence Olivier, which became one of the 
one of the big sort of points of contention for her and Elia Kazan when she came to Hollywood and, and wanted mm-hmm. to do it Larry's way and not Kazan's way. Mm-hmm. So what you're talking about with this with this idea of, of gentility, I think, is something that's built into the classical stage tradition. Classical training, which which method acting, well, the Stanislavski method and then the capital M method acting supplanted, was built on vocal training and, you know, moving your body and, and being able to, um, you know, perform sword fights if you had to perform sword fights or dancing and, you know, basically any of the tools that you would need to adequately perform Shakespeare. Mm. And that would often include poetic training and, you know, an understanding of things like scansion and where to put the emphasis in in the, the poetry of Shakespeare and textual analysis. So it's very fitting that Blanche is an English teacher. And the idea is to create a performance that you can really, you know, repeat night after night after night to have it be exactly the same so that the performance is one sort of whole and complete repeatable event often built from the outside in. You know, famously, Olivier would think about the appearance of his character and build that appearance as a way to get into the character. So he would try on different, I don't know if this is, I'm just making this up, but this is the kind of thing he would do, you know, maybe try on different prosthetic noses for Richard III and mm. try different hairstyles and different capes. And based on that, he would sort of f- feel his way into the character through this outward facade. Mm. Method, of course, is very opposite of that. In a way, Lee represents like, you know, if you work hard enough, you can become that character. Whereas Brando and the method is more like, you know, you are that character. You just have to find it inside yourself. And mm. you don't have to work to, you, you, well, you do have to work to bring it out, but it's a different mindset. So it develops from emotional realism and from finding emotional moments within yourself and connect those into your performance, which tends to be not very repeatable, which tends to be more spontaneous, which tends to be very exhausting and difficult to repeat because it is so quote-unquote authentic, and it does not rely on vocal training and other things that, that in a literal way kind of would take money and a certain kind of breeding, you know, to, (laughs) like Marlon Brando, though, though he can speak well and uh, enunciate his words properly, doesn't have to have a very developed vocal register in order to play the roles that he plays, right? He plays mm. bums who can just sort of elide all of their consonants and and he doesn't have to have that crisp stage trained voice because that's not the kind of role that he's playing and he's he's creating something new. So Blanche's, you know, her vocal flexibility is something that always I admire in this role. I mean, really, my two of my favorite screen performances of all time are her in Gone with the Wind and her in this movie. Mm. You know, she has this this breathy, flirtatious upper register, and it it deepens into that really rich lower register when she's being real, quote unquote, and and mm. telling the truth. This chameleon property is really indicative of classical stage training. And to be a stage actor, you have to be able to have a a wide repertoire and to become different things and to be very false, you know, and the stage is, is smoke and mirrors, you know, the stage, Mm. you're, you're far enough away from people that they really can't tell how old you are. So you can go on playing ingenue roles into your forties, you know, it's distance and illusion, you know, film is the close up, And as we see, with Mitch and Blanche, you know, some the close-up can be unforgiving. It can be kind of, we might say, cruel. So the English teacher, college-educated 
elements of Blanche's personality, the fact that she does come from a very educated family, is part of this class distinction that I think is also inherent in the classical stage acting tradition. But it's, it is also very closely, you know, because of this, this connection I'm making or trying to make between classical stage training and old Hollywood, it very much is a, a retreat into fantasy. You know, she mentions Poe and Arabian Nights. Stanley compares her to Cleopatra. And in fact, Vivian Lee played both mm. Shakespeare's Cleopatra on stage and Shaw's Cleopatra on film. So the femininity of that and the the fantastical mm-hmm. element of that, I think, are really closely linked. The the old Hollywood, you know, not not needing to have any kind of realism. And then we see with Brando this break into what will become New Hollywood method, the real, the emotional experience the talking however it is that you talk and not making any kind of particular effort, not trying to show yourself to best advantage, but just sort of letting it all hang out. You know, all of this stuff is, you know, we could take it as a as a clash of acting styles, but also I think as you're suggesting, this clash between the ultimate feminine and the ultimate masculine characters and also a really sharp class distinction and also kind of an ethnic distinction too, which mm-hmm. is going to be really important. Of course, he is a hundred, hundred percent American. Remember to keep that. He in is a hundred percent American. <laughs> yes. But as, as the ethnic stars, uh, you know, come to be people from Poland are Poles, not Polacks. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, that's good. I mean, I think all of these polarities kind of line up. The one I hadn't thought about is this one that you've brought up between the classical training and method acting, which lends itself perfectly to the raw, animal, instinctual nature of Stanley, who's someone who inhabits his desire, right? And just sort of, Mm. without any self-consciousness, acts on it, lets things out. And then the refinement of Blanche, which may be a pseudo refinement in a way. And, and her relationship to desire is complicated because, you know, I've, I've painted her as a hysteric in a way, which suggests that what she wants is to be desired, but she's not interested in consummation. Consummation is too dangerous. Mm. So what really happened in Laurel, or as they call it in the play, Oriole, they changed the name because they didn't want to insult the real town of Laurel, <laughs> uh, Mississippi. But what happens in Laurel is a bit unclear, right? The suggestion may be that she's just a hypocrite and she's sexually ravenous and hides it, which I think, given her character, is probably not what's going on. So even if she is involved, as she seems to confess at the end, in lots of liaisons with men... I think her account of that is probably accurate, which is that she's desperate and she's looking for protection. So it's not sex per se that she's out for. She's been reduced to using it to get what she wants. At some point, she even says that, you know, she'll go out on the streets if she, if she has to mm-hmm. because she's so destitute. That's sort of the very primal conflict in this play between stanley's which again you know you can we can read in terms of class masculinity femininity our relationship to desire however you want to think about it but these two are a uh an explosive combination mm-hmm. you know it's there right from the very beginning when the minute that stanley walks in and sees that his someone's been drinking his whiskey <laughs> and said oh you know this really good liquor really goes fast during the summer or when it's hot something like that and and then he offers Blanche a drink, and I think she says she doesn't touch it, right? Yep. 
And he has that great line about, you know, some people don't touch it, but it touches them often. Yep. Um, and of course, she's already had, you know, she's already been drinking. It, so it's a perfect beginning to a troubled relationship. I know Kazan and, and maybe to a certain degree, Tennessee Williams both realized that in different versions or, or stagings of the play, one's sympathies, depending on the vision that the director has, may tend toward Blanche or they may tend toward Stanley. I think that what Kazan was interested in was kind of a bait and switch, maybe halfway through yeah. where at first you're really annoyed with Blanche and then you realize, or or you think that she's kind of the villain maybe. <laughs> and then you realize that she is superior to, as, as I said before, superior to the other characters in the play, which we can talk about whether or not that's true, but that the personal magnetism of Brando is still such a, uh, such a tremendous draw that one's, Sympathies are cloudy and ambivalent in the way that is, you know, uh, beneficial to the art of the film. And so I've watched this movie with people who say Brando is so disgusting how, you know, the the character, I should say, Stanley Mm -hmm. is so disgusting, except for the fact that he's handsome. How could anybody be charmed by him like like he's so gross like even just when he sprays the beer on himself like he's mm. just disgusting so um were well, you there's taking... a very fine line between disgust and uh <laughs> desire that's and true sex and sexiness like that's true there's, All right. a very, All right. there's a very yeah important relationship between sex and disgust or or lust and disgust so my question is are you know are you riding the brando train are you, do you train. understand why? Yeah. The, or the, the Brando streetcar. I've been railroaded by his raw masculinity. Um, when I first saw this, I was just blown away by Brando's performance. Whatever attractions there are in Stanley's character, it just, you know, it, his looks and then also his vitality, basically, and his masculinity, his aggression, all of those things. I can understand why some people would be find that exciting and i think i probably found it exciting too in a way although i think he becomes a villain for me pretty early on in the play i mean the whole thing with napoleonic law he's such a moron and then he just becomes progressively more villainous until there's a rape which is much more obvious in the play but it's still pretty strongly suggested in the in the movie as well or or somewhat hinted at for me that's a devastating moment because as villainous as he is there's a logic to it. You can make sense of that in terms of the relationship between him and Blanche and their differing characters and a kind of primal conflict between them. Like these are two forces of nature in a way at work that goes off the rails. Pardon the pun from <laughs> here on a streetcar mm-hmm. that goes off the rails with the rape that the logic completely breaks down because that can't be explained in terms of their conflict it has to be explained in terms of stanley's basic sociopathy so that's an interesting turn of the play so it's hard for me to say i I couldn't say i'm i'm sympathetic towards stanley at at any point i'm i'm impressed by him but but not sympathetic towards him and you know with blanche it's um she's formidable in her own right too so i think there's a lot to her despite the fact that she's not so overtly aggressive as Stanley. At one point, she says to Stanley that as they're in it, they're fighting over. Yeah, this is the whole scene where he's been rifling through her trunk, and it starts out with Stanley talking to Stella. You know, have you ever heard of the Napoleonic Code? And just, I just love this <laughs> scene. 
you know, in the state of Louisiana, we have the Napoleonic Code, according to which what belongs to the wife belongs to the husband and vice versa. And yeah, he's going through the trunk, genuine fox fur pieces, a half mile long, finding her costume jewelry, the treasure chest of a pirate, this whole thing with him treating this cheap costume stuff as if it's <laughs> precious and and an indication that she's she's sold Belle Reve and is is, you know, swindling them. And then we get Blanche come out and says, you know, it looks like my trunk has exploded. It's a really interesting response, right? There's an element of sophistication in what Blanche is doing. She doesn't just come out and confront him and say, what the hell are you doing going through my trunk? She sort of excises his agency from the situation. It looks mm-hmm. like my trunk has exploded as if it, he's not there in a way. or it's um, So in a way that, mm-hmm. that exonerates him, but it also potentially castrates or emasculates him it says you know this isn't you didn't do this this is not your power at work and you know eventually it ends up with her telling him that he's a little a little bit on the primitive side which is where her restraint with him it breaks down and right after that stella's upset by that you know stella comes in on this as as an upset by their fighting and then she sends stella off to get a lemon coke for her so she does something where she's protecting Stella and standing up to Stanley by herself. So right after she sends him out for the lemon Coke, she says to Stanley, the poor little thing was out there listening to us. And I have an idea. She doesn't understand you as well as I do. All right. Now, Mr. Kowalski, let us proceed without any more double talk. I'm ready to answer all questions. I have nothing to hide. What is it? And then he talks about Napoleonic code and she's like, my, you have, but you have an impressive judicial air. So I, <laughs> I, I guess there's something formidable about her and her, um, her willingness to stand up for herself in this situation and protect Stella. And initially, like I said, the whole trunk exploding thing, her sort of indirect approach to, to Stanley. But it, what it becomes is condescension. Mm. And that is her undoing because mm. Stanley's response to that condescension this sets in motion the whole chain of events where essentially stanley's going to try to destroy her and and succeeds because he obviously finds blanche's treatment humiliating Mm. i mean in the beginning with the whole napoleonic code thing what is that really about does he really care about the estate i think I think you could say that probably has something more to do with the idea that his his marriage kind of extends the beyond the boundary of that particular relationship with Stella, that it encompasses or nullifies or supersedes, right? All Stella's other relationships. Hmm. He has to have her entirely to herself. And that's what the Napoleonic Code really represents. And that, that jealousy and that, that threat of Blanche intruding, right, is a big part of the play, including intruding on intruding on the sexual relationship. He'll talk about how things will be better again when they can get the colored lights going and, and Blanche mm-hmm. is not there to overhear them having sex. But beyond that particular conflict, I think it, it's really Blanche's condescension, which is her undoing. I guess I'm trying to say that there is a tragic hero quality to her in this this respect. There's something impressive. She's she's not just crazy and uh, hysteric there's there's actually something impressive about her character i don't know if you, you agree with that oh totally a little bit after what you read the the impressive judicial air stanley says if i didn't know you was my wife's sister i would get ideas about you <laughs> and she says such as what <laughs> don't play so dumb you know what 
And then that's when her voice kind of goes down a little bit. She says, all mm. right, cards on the table. I know I fib a good deal. After all, a woman's charm is 50% illusion. But when a thing is important, I tell the truth. And this is the truth. I never cheated my sister or you or anyone else on earth as long as I lived. And he says, where are the papers? In your trunk? And she says, everything I own is in that trunk. Mm-hmm. Which, so that's true. I mean, I don't think she has cheated anyone, really. Um, she's She believes that what she's doing is personal charm. And uh, and she, she knows that she fibs. Mm-hmm. But she has legitimately lost the house because, you know, you feel actually... Looking at the text of the play, I think this comes across even more so. Stella has done the equivalent of leaving Blanche in charge of the care of, say, the yes. parents, the elderly yes. parents, and Stella's just left. And I'm very I, like I'm 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 very curious about how all that went down. You know what happened right. at Belle Reve, and and that's left a mystery. Right, and actually, in the same way that you're describing with with Blanche being clever with Stanley and not accusing Stanley, Blanche is being maybe a little bit more accusatory with Stella, but nowhere near the level that she should be. I mean, she should have, and and I think she does have a lot of aggression towards Stella. It comes out passively, but I think she has every right to feel as though she's been left in the lurch, or maybe she has taken on more than than she should have or become a martyr for for this lost cause in a way that isn't entirely necessary but uh, like for instance when they're in the play it's it's in the apartment in the play of all the action takes place in the apartment in the film it's when they're talking in the bowling alley mm-hmm. blanche has this really clever bait and switch where she says she's telling stella she has something to tell her and it's the fact that she lost bell reeve stella asks what is it that you want to tell me. And she says, well, Stella, you're going to reproach me. I know that you're bound to reproach me, but before you do take into consideration, you left. I stayed mm-hmm. and struggled. You came to new Orleans and looked out for yourself. I stayed at Belle Reve and tried to hold it together. I'm not meaning this in any reproachful way, but all the burden descended on my shoulders. So I love that, that little paragraph because she uses the same word. You're bound to reproach me, but... And then at the end, I don't mean this in any reproachful way. Mm-hmm. So somewhere in the middle of that, she's gone in on this self-accusatory track and then halfway through turned it around, you know, turned the knife on Stella. And she's very clever in the way that she tries to manipulate mm-hmm. Stella emotionally or or passive-aggressively tries to get Stella to... To do what, ultimately? To give her sympathy and to give her a place to stay until she could get on her feet? I think those are kind of reasonable, (laughs) you know, reasonable things. I mean, what ultimately does she want from Stella and from Stanley? Does she want something different from either of them? I think maybe she wants some version of the same thing. I mean, she wants to be complimented. She wants to be appreciated, I think, and for her looks and also evidently for what she did in trying to hold on to the house, Stella never gives her any credit for it, Mm -hmm. which is maddening, actually. Stella is very preoccupied with her man. (laughs) Right, right. Well, what would have happened if Stanley wasn't there? I mean, I think that Blanche and Stanley are both trying to pull Stella into a relationship with them that is the status quo. So for Mm -hmm. Stanley, that is obviously a sexual relationship where she's so in love with him or satisfied with him sexually that she doesn't even have to bother to really think about anything else. And with Blanche, maybe it's being Blanche's pet and being her younger sister and I don't know, being the 
obviously the less attractive younger sister who's there to prop up Blanche, maybe. I don't know. But she doesn't do it even in a, in a satisfactory way for the sake of politeness. If you had a sister who stayed and took care of everybody, well, apparently everyone was dropping dead around her mm -hmm. and she had to pay for all their funerals, which Stella apparently didn't even show up to because she wasn't aware of the fact that the house was gone or that all these people had died. Then to not even say, gee, thanks for doing that, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, I mean, it occurs to me right now how terrible that is and how Stella is just like drunk on Stanley. She's too blotto to even know what's going on. It's bizarre. Yeah. The way she puts it, I took the blows in my face and my body, all of those deaths, the long parade to the graveyard, father, mother, Margaret, that dreadful way, so big with it, it couldn't be put in a coffin, Oof. but had to be burned like rubbish. You just came home in time for the funeral, Stella. Oh, so she did go home. Okay. okay. And funerals are pretty compared to deaths. Funerals are quiet, but deaths not always. I'm using the play, so the film might have left that part mm. out that Stella goes home for the funerals. So funerals are quiet, but deaths not always. Sometimes their breathing is hoarse, and sometimes it rattles, and sometimes they even cry out to you, don't let me go. Even the old sometimes say, don't let me go. And she'll go on to say, you know, and now you sit there telling me with your eyes that I let the place go. Death is expensive. And then moving down, just a very long speech, so I won't read all of it, but the, it ends with, where were you? In bed with your Polak. <laughs> <laughs> Or in bed with your beat Pollock. I was reading more of that because of this whole question of death becomes very important, right? Mm -hmm. Where Blanche will say death is the very opposite of desire. Mm -hmm. So I want to make sense of that at some point. Going back to our, our speculation about what would have happened if Stanley weren't there, it's unclear whether Blanche is to blame for the loss of Belle Reeve. She blames it on the fornications of her forebears. Forebears. <laughs> fornications of her forebears <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> and uh, which is probably true you know but we get we get the idea later on that blanche has been among the fornicators that still doesn't make it clear to me whether she's responsible for the final loss of the estate whether she's living a, whatever some kind of lifestyle that she couldn't keep up i'm reminded of these travelogues again by the way where they they said very frequently they said these southern planters were living lifestyles that they simply couldn't sustain Mm. And would do this very boom and bust thing where they would sustain it for a while, keep up appearances, and then they'd be poor for a while until the crops came in. How pathetic do you have to be that you have slave labor and you still can't <laughs> right. make the ends meet? Like, right. God. Anyway. Yeah. So I think yeah, there is an element of a survivor in, in Blanche. You know, if we want to compare it to Scarlet in that sense, you know, she ends up at the Flamingo and she's doing what she needs to do to survive. She ends up in New Orleans, destitute, but she has a sister that she can ask for help. And she runs into a, it's not a pothole, it's a, a landmine, right? Mm. In Stanley, she steps on a landmine that closes her whole repetition, brings all of that to a very sudden end. But if he hadn't been there, I think she would have continued her game with men without ever finding the husband that she supposedly wants, right? So there's, there's a reason right. why she married a gay man when she was 16. It's, they don't make that obvious in the film, but in the play, it's, it's obvious that she married a, a boy who turned out to be gay, and when she told him that she was disgusted by that, he killed himself. I thought it was because he likes poetry. <laughs> <laughs> same thing. And he's very sensitive. <laughs> Aaron, same thing. <laughs> <laughs> 
That's like one of the stupidest things about the rewrite in the movie. Like a boy who likes poetry. <laughs> yeah. He was a, he was such a gentle soul and I didn't like that. Well, of course, you know. And he had to die because of it. <laughs> and I told him he was a pussy and went and killed himself. Yeah, it's it's not very well motivated in the in the film, but there's a reason why she married that kind of guy, which is because I think, you know, it, and her her relationship to desire is such that she really doesn't want consummation. She wants to remain mm-hmm. at the level of appearance. She wants to stay away from the the Stanley-esque discharge of impulses and keep things at that genteel sort of level permanently, which there's arguably something death-like about that. So where she, you know, when she says death is the opposite of desire, it's a little confusing because her relationship to desire is confusing. There's the famous scene with, you know, flowers for the dead, right? Mm -hmm. Where she says, not yet. What is she saying there? What is it that's coming for her? And what is it she's saying by saying not yet? Sure. Well, I mean, there's a sense in which she is already dead, right? Yeah. She's a ghost now. It's like she's outlived the narrative of her backstory. So in a way, she's like (laughs) post-desire. I mean, Mm. so she takes the streetcar to what, cemetery and then to Elysian Fields. (laughs) Yeah. So she's already dead. She looks like a ghost throughout the whole film. Yeah, the idea of fading looks and being a fading personage are are related, but yeah, go ahead. Right, right. And and you get the sense that she's living this postscript (laughs) life (laughs) after the, the suicide of her husband. But there's a sense in which everything that she's doing doesn't really count, you know, mm-hmm. like it doesn't really matter. Like, first of all, you never see any of it. It's all just part of this backstory. Belle Reve is just this shadowy, ancient place. It's only referenced by Stella and Stanley in terms of a photograph. You know, you showed me a photograph of a place with columns. Mm-hmm. It's like nothing really matters because it's like she's dead. So nothing she's doing, it's almost, it almost justifies her sort of flight to fancy and her, I think she has the sense that none of this is really real. Like, I'm not really here. I didn't have to go to New Orleans and do any of this because it's so beneath me. She doesn't even really believe it's happening. And so I think that's part of this this escape into fantasy that she can't deal with. But I'm, I'm sorry, I'm getting off of your train of thought. No, no, I think that's right. I mean, well, what's the relationship between death and desire? I mean, you, you mentioned right. the her being a ghost and I said something about fading looks and and there's this idea that she wants to be desired but she doesn't want to consummate it well she has consummated it i mean my argument is that she's consummated it for the sake of getting protection or but but she's not into it basically but she has to be in order to have that push pull with stanley i mean she has to love it and hate it at the same time because that's what stanley is stanley is consummation right and mm-hmm. she has to be equally attracted and repelled by him and we have to know that she's capable of consummation, but it's not really, she couldn't have possibly expected protection from the men she was having sex with in the tarantula arms. Well, here's the question. Why didn't she, and this will lead us back to the relationship between death and desire, but why didn't she find a husband again after you know she lost her first husband who wasn't really a husband in a way you know what so why didn't she find a husband during that time is it just trauma just the trauma of the loss of her first husband and the trauma of taking care of all the 
dying people in her family or is it something more where she's in a pattern where she's just not that's just not going to happen and even if stanley weren't there in new orleans it's not like things would have worked out with mitch that's my thesis that's a really good question i mean i guess i have a mental image of her becoming a spinster as she's taking Mm. care of these but you know she's been put into this caretaker or parental role almost for these people who are dying. And it's also, she's also, she could have pulled Estella though. Right. And she could have. Yeah. But I think that the part of that is maybe fanning the flames of this dying society, trying to keep it alive by keeping these people alive and by keeping the house intact. This is where gone with the wind is, is helpful as a, as a, as a way to understand this, like, you know, in gone with the wind, like she cares more about Tara than she does about any person. You know, Mm -hmm. because of the obsession, the the Southern obsession with the land. She'll do anything to keep the land. Also, Stella is slumming it, right? So maybe the consummation of desire just means slumming it. It means losing that status in a way. He's, you know, Stanley says, I ripped you down off of those columns. Right. And and what's more genteel than a boy who likes poetry? (laughs) Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think that what Stanley finds false in her is her rejection of the animal nature, even as that is very much within her. So she's still having sex with men in the the tarantula arms, you know. I think she still wants that, but I think that she almost has to be taken. You know, and this is where we get into the whole rape thing. But what is the point of her flirtations but to push that off, right? To keep the guy interested, but also to push him away or or to keep him at arm's length, right? Because you have to it rests on this illusion of virginity. So you have, well, for her, it's an illusion at this point, but so you have to entice the guy enough that he's interested, but keep him away so that he will respect you. I mean, she says something like this in the play. Yeah, but I think she's just using that to, really, she's just keeping guys at at bay, um, unless they're gay. <laughs> well, see, I think it's both. I think it's both because I think it's be- that's become her, that's become the only way that she knows how to function. That falseness and flirtatiousness has become her reality. She doesn't know what to do with it once she's caught it. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like she, she's playing with something and, and doesn't know what to do to a certain extent. But then at the same time, we have this at the subterranean level, uh, you know, in terms of her consciousness, that part of herself is still having an outlet. But it's just the part that she's lying to herself about. And consciously, she's still doing this flirtatious thing. I think that's what Stanley hates, right? Yeah, that's the interpretation. It's probably more plausible, but it's the one that I'm trying to argue against. (laughs) My interpretation is yes, it's definitely much more speculative and not on the firmest of ground. But what I'm inclined to say is that she is someone who's not into sex per se, and that's that's part of the problem. And that she's this whole idea of using her charms and and feigning virginity or whatever to get men. It's really, really what she's ultimately doing is driving them away. And, um, but it works. (laughs) It works with Mitch. It does temporarily, but I think it wouldn't, even though Stanley is the one who blows all this up, that scene with the newspaper boy Mm -hmm. makes it pretty clear what's going on, which is that, she is going to do very self-destructive things that will end up ruining these relationships and giving herself a bad name. Like there's no real reason she had to get a bad name in Laurel by associating with all these different men, except that she was in a pattern of drawing them in and then repulsing them. She calls herself a tarantula, ironically. Yeah. So those are two 
possible interpretations, I think, in either case, the question is, how is death the very opposite of desire, and how does that apply here? I think, in one sense, there are some very obvious ways to cash that out, and one of them, you know, you just, just death is the end of our existence as strivers and desirers, but also the idea of getting old, right, her, her, her idea is that her aging and her, her approach towards death means she can't be the object of desire. Mm. And if I'm right, you know, if my, my interpretation about her relationship to desire is right, there's something death-like about that in the sense that she's, she can't inhabit that vitality that Stanley has. But I think she sees that as threatening. So I think she, you know, so she recognizes maybe something death-like in consummation, in the discharge of desire, where it's something, you know, there mm-hmm. is a streetcar element to that. There's something almost mechanical, and she's all about high culture and higher consciousness, and the discharge and, and consummation reduces you to something physical and ape-like. You know, she talks about apes, and maybe, maybe we should read that speech He acts like an animal, has an animal's habits, eats like one, moves like one, talks like one. There's even something subhuman, something not quite to the stage of humanity yet. Yes, something ape-like about him, like one of those pictures I've seen in anthropological studies. Thousands and thousands of years have passed him right by, and there he is, Stanley Kowalski, survivor of the Stone Age, bearing the raw meat home from the kill in the jungle. And you, you here, waiting for him, Maybe he'll strike you or maybe grunt and kiss you. That is, if kisses have been discovered yet. (laughs) Night falls and the other apes gather. There in front of the cave, all grunting like him and swilling and gnawing and hulking. His poker night, you call it. This party of apes. Somebody growls. Some creature snatches at something. The fight is on. God. Maybe we are a long way from being made in God's image. But Stella, my sister, there has been some progress since then. Such things as art, as poetry and music, such kinds of new light have come into this world since then. In some kinds of people, some tender feelings have had some little beginning that we have got to make grow and cling to and hold as our flag in this dark march towards whatever it is we're approaching. Don't. Don't hang back with the brutes. So, the dark march towards whatever it is we're approaching. Hints of of death there, right? Mm. And the idea is that she can avoid death by not being brutish, by not giving in to desire, by staying at the level of appearance and gentility and cultural sophistication and, and all that stuff. But then there's the, there's the countervailing idea that that is just what it means to be death-like and what it means to live is to, is to actually give in to desire and be ape-like and be, <laughs> you know discharge impulses and all that stuff so that those are what i find really interesting is those i i don't think the play resolves that and and so we we get two conflicting visions of the relationship between desire and death that we can't really there's kind of a point to both of them yeah i i like that a lot i I think which of these two characters blanche or stanley is a survivor of the stone age (laughs) you know (laughs) because i think we have with stanley like you know the, the the modernity and the progress that she's talking about is actually running counter to the way that the culture is going, which is which is a more a more naked and frank and open relationship with sexual desire or or you know whatever like the, the sexual revolution is is about to break through and 
partially, you know, I think what we've been getting at is that a lot of what Blanche is after in her flirtatiousness and her aping of virginity is the pretending that those elements are dead in you, right? Or, Or maybe like hinting at them, but keeping yourself safe from them. It's almost as though what Blanche is advocating in this speech, as I said before, is like this idea of of keeping death alive, right? <laughs> like, mm. or keep the keeping the uh, the idea of putting death to these impulses alive in a strange way. She's advocating the idea that to dampen these passions underneath art is the thing that we have to perpetuate. The death is what we have to perpetuate. Obviously, like you could argue that art is is built on top of those more natural impulses or that it's like a purification of those things or and, and culture and politeness and gentility all of that stuff is a sublimation of those things and, and right and is more you could argue they are more alive right but i think williams complicates that by tethering those principles to someone who is related to this dying culture you know and by making stanley the the live one the one who is the most alive and the most in touch with his animal impulses, it becomes a strange, I don't know, I think it, it oddly enough, you know, turns that on its head and suggests that art and music and higher things are just as dead as Belle Reve and all the collection of skeletons there. You're elaborating on the conflict that I was pointing out, the conflict between two different conceptions of the relationship between desire and death and which one is more death-like discharge or repression slash sublimation. And I think it's hard to arbitrate. You know, it's hard. It, 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 there's a point to both positions. Well, I wonder how this relates to the idea of cruelty. Obviously, Stanley is, Blanche accuses him of being deliberately cruel and says that that's the one thing that she's never been guilty of. The idea of deliberateness versus things that are unintentional is a strange one because I think deliberateness implies forethought, which Stanley has none. And everything is just very immediate with him and he doesn't really think about anything. Whereas Blanche is the calculating one. But cruelty, of course, runs contrary to that. I mean, Stanley is obviously quite cruel. We see him beat up his pregnant wife and, of course, rape Blanche. Is she talking about Mitch there or Stanley? Maybe she's talking about both in a sense, yeah. I think I think so. Yeah. So scene ten, she's she's telling this to to Stanley about Mitch, right? Yeah. This whole story about him coming back to beg her forgiveness, and but him rebuffing him. Some things are not forgivable. De- deliberate cruelty is not forgivable. But she says this accusatorily to Stanley and telling she changes. That's good. I mean, arguably, she's she's talking about Mitch, but really, she's talking about Stanley to Stanley as well. Right. And the what Mitch has done that's un, unforgivable is repeating the slander and vicious stories from you, she says to Stanley. Yeah. So Mitch isn't really the one being deliberately cruel. Stanley is. I mean, there's nothing. Right. He's just responding to these stories. But yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and also there's a different there's a tension between. So she says to repeat slander and vicious stories. So the stories may be vicious, but they're not slanderous. <laughs> I mean, they are true. So that's another kind of tension. Of course, this whole idea of him coming back to beg her forgiveness is all invented by her. She's lying to Stanley mm-hmm. about Mitch's actions here. But you were talking about, so the nature of cruelty in, in your introduction, mm-hmm. you mentioned the relationship between cruelty and reality, which I thought was really interesting. 
Yeah. What Blanche shrinks from is exposure, right? And she seems to think that part of being cruel or the, or the things that are most cruel to her are the exposure of her, her body, her past, or in Stanley, the naked cruelty of his actions and of his vices. So there's this idea that by couching things in a kind of fantasy, Blanche is making them less cruel, that cruelty increases with reality and decreases with fantasy or, or something like that, if we think of it as a knob. So what is Stanley's cruelty, other than trying to, you know, actively trying to destroy Blanche? He doesn't want to play along with her game. You know, in a way, his cruelty is the re- rejection of social niceties and the rejection of gentility and the rejection of the element of lying involved in those things so there's an honesty to stanley right because he's just Mm. being who he is even if that's a a brute there's an honesty to to brutishness but that honesty is also a form of cruelty right it leads you know he he beats stella he when you it's it's honest to act on your impulses in a sense and to bring them to light but it also is inevitably cruel and to avoid cruelty we do have to repress and 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 that it also implies that we do have to in a way hide and lie you know we refrain from just saying everything everything that comes to our mind right around people because that would be cruel if we just you know didn't keep that under wraps i mean ultimately there's a point where where stella says to stanley you didn't need to be i think it's in scene eight you didn't need to be so cruel to someone alone as she is mm. and stanley says delicate piece she is Stella says she is, she was, you didn't know Blanche as a girl. Nobody was tender and trusting as she was, but people like you abused her and forced her to change. Mm. Stella's responding to Stanley giving Blanche the birthday remembrance, the ticket back to Laurel. Yeah, that's so mean. So horrible. But there's some connection between this and the kindness of strangers, right? Because Stella's making this connection between cruelty and aloneness. Mm aloneness or being a stranger is supposed to elicit kindness, I think in Blanche's world. And Stella is supporting that idea here, which is that so, and this is one of the things right about Southern hospitality, which is that hospitality is all about how you treat strangers. It's all about going out of your way to give them food, to give them lodging, to um, be kind to them in various ways to show them respect, even though you don't have any familial or personal or intimate connection and so it becomes an expression of status it becomes a, a an expression of one's superiority and independence that you can that you can be so giving to a stranger mm-hmm. as opposed to treating them as a as some sort of threat you're strong enough and you have enough resources that they're not going to be a drain on those resources and they can't be a threat so you can invite you can invite anyone anyone to eat at your table and but that's still a very distant relation, right? That's, a, that's another way of avoiding consummation, to keep things at that kindness level. And so cruelty, again, is, is, it kind of lines up with descending into the, the situation that Stella is in, where desire is associated with cruelty, where she has a very dynamic and, and sexual, you know, she has a very strong sexual connection to Stanley. As she said, you know, she says there's, like things happen under the sheets, right? Or something that, mm-hmm. that make everything all right, no matter what the, the actual relationship is like. So she has that. That's compensation enough for the fact that socially that's going to manifest itself as cruelty. So St- Stanley's sexual dynamism, his raw 
masculinity is sexually exciting, but it's inevitably cruel outside of that cruel in other social contexts. So do you choose the cruel but close or do you choose the distant stranger connection but kind and and genteel i think that's kind of the the opposition here and i was going to try and get the get us back to the relationship between cruelty and reality with that i don't know if i've i like what you're saying there we've talked about how both blanche and stanley are trying to exert control over stella i mean i would say that the the cruel but close is certainly true uh, but the other quote you gave about how, you know, everything is better or it makes it all better or what or whatever. I mean, there's a papering over the reality that's also happening in that sexual relationship. Mm-hmm. So, you know, she gets drawn back to him after he's beat her up with the famous Stella scene on the the sort of hypnotism <laughs> that he has her under, under with this physical relationship that they have. In the same way, I think that that thing that you're talking about with Southern hospitality, the the flip side of that is the falseness of that, actually, right? That person that you let into your house and are very kind to is actually not someone you're close to, and it's Mm -hmm. not your family, and it's not someone to whom you owe a particular loyalty. So I think that's where people, at least for me as a Yankee, I don't know, you can, you can we have this North South thing going on here, but between the two of us, you can defend your own, but (laughs) you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of people in the North find that to be false, right? Like this, like Southerners are very quick to become friends with you, but it's a very shallow relation. Not, not always, but I'm saying, you know, the, the stereotype is that they are super friendly to you and invite you in like you're one of them, but really they're talking about you behind your back. Whereas Mm -hmm. like the Northerners will just like tell you to your face that they don't like you and they'll keep you out and keep you out and keep you out. And then one day after you've like paid your dues, suddenly you'll find that you're in. And then once you're in, you're really in and they won't talk (laughs) badly about you behind your back. Right. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to draw a connection here to the, to the fact that they're both kind of like a distortion actually of reality. So like Stella is in an abusive relationship. It's, it's, weirdly a relationship that kind of works for them it's actually a happy relationship which i is a very odd thing to say i know and and i'm not (laughs) Mm -hmm. i'm not saying it makes it okay i'm just saying that the the sexual aspect of their relationship is i mean i think that she acts drugged during during a lot of the the, at least the film yeah the way the way uh tennessee williams describes it is narcoticized Stella's lying down in the bedroom. This is the beginning of scene four. Her face is serene in the early morning sunlight. One hand rests on her belly, rounding slightly with new maternity. From the other angles, a book of colored comics. Her eyes and lips have that almost narcotized tranquility that is in the faces of Eastern idols. Yeah, it's like she's drugging herself with the sexual aspect of their relationship to be able to bear the other elements of it, though she does say that she gets a thrill out of the fact that he likes to, I don't know, break things and be disgusting. Yeah, yeah, she says that, yeah. What I want to draw the connection to, and I think this is also going to go back to you're talking about, is when when Mitch comes and accuses Blanche and they have that confrontation. One of the key quotes of the film for me is Blanche says, I don't want realism, I want magic. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, magic. (laughs) I try to give that to people. I do misrepresent things. I don't tell the truth. I tell what ought to be truth. Mm-hmm. And if that is sinful, then let me be punished for it. I try to give that to people, she says, the magic, like a form of hospitality is to give people magic and to not tell the truth. Mm-hmm. And she tells what ought to be true. 
so the odd thing about Stanley's reality is that it's keeping Stella narcoticized or, or whatever the word is. And that seems to be the magic for them, right? The colored lights, the, the idea that there's some sort of hidden magic between them. So this is his argument right after being accused of cruelty to Blanche by Stella and saying delicate piece she is and, and Stella saying how tender she was as a child. This is Stanley's counter argument. When we first met me and you, you thought I was common. How right you was, baby. I was common as dirt. You showed me the snapshot of the place with the columns. I pulled you down off them columns and how you loved it, having them colored lights going. And wasn't we happy together? Wasn't it all okay till she showed here? And wasn't we happy together? Wasn't it all okay till she showed here? Hoity-toity, describing me as an ape. Love that. <laughs> he thinks this directly addresses the question of cruelty towards someone who is soft and tender. And his argument is just that Blanche's fragility and susceptibility to cruelty, they, they represent an impediment to their relationship. So mm. in a very obvious sense, it's just about her being there and annoying Stanley and getting in between them and their relationship and, and probably making it difficult to have sex and because there's no privacy. But on another level, it's the fact that her world of magic is entirely antithetical to Stanley's world of acting impulsively. <laughs> so mm -hmm. the two things are, so if we think of the impulsivity as, as reality in a way and Blanche's magic as, as some sort of transformation of that, Stanley understands that her magic is a, is for him is a kind of dark magic. It's kryptonite. <laughs> it's, it, right. it, it takes away everything that he wants out of a relationship, which is just for things to be right there on the surface, to be obvious when you have an emotion, you express it. When you feel violence, you, you do it. Not all this social obfuscation and these social niceties. Right. And he, he accuses her fragility of being a show. But really, she is that fragile, right? Like, she really right, is. Right. Well, first of all, I love the contrast between, and I think you get this more with Vivian Lee than you did with Tandy, even though Tandy is also a small woman, not as small as Lee, though. But you get this real contrast between Stella's body and Blanche's. And Blanche just looks like you could just break her in half, you know? Um, but she mm -hmm. is also mentally fragile. I mean, and she really is, because ultimately she can't handle, she can't handle the truth. <laughs> and she has to make up a fantasy in order to deal with what, what you know, with, with her being committed. The truth that is thrust upon her in the end is what makes her, her crack. She really can't deal with it. Or maybe she chooses to, I don't know, as soon as I say something, I, I argue the opposite. Maybe she chooses to retreat into the realm of fantasy completely. But still, that's, a, that's an inability to deal with the reality, the cruelty of Stanley's committing her in the end. And also Stella has a part in, in that too. And also with the reality and the cruelty of the rape perpetrated against her, mm -hmm. which is, you know, I can only see that rape is symbolic ultimately. Yeah, it kind of ruins the play in a sense. It does. If you read it literally. The only redeeming thing about Stanley is that he actually really does love Stella, I mm -hmm. think. And then she's at the hospital giving birth and he goes home and rapes her sister. Yeah. Like you can only think of that in terms of. I think that's a violation of the Napoleonic code. <laughs> I think it is. I think it is. <laughs> and, he, and he just becomes such a complete villain. 
William says uh, in a in a letter to Kazan that you know Stanley isn't a like a dyed in the wool villain or, or or something like that. That there is no black and white. There's only gray. Well, in that moment, like he's he he becomes yeah a one hundred percent black hearted villain. You know. Yeah. And so I can only see that in terms of symbolism, which is Stanley is going to in the in the act of or the symbolic act of rape is going to bring reality to Blanche's flirtatiousness, reality to appearance. And right, so it becomes, right. you know, he says we, we've had this date from the beginning. So the rape works at a metaphorical level as between two like forces of nature or two fundamental right. philosophical principles. You could even call it will and representation if you really wanted to get <laughs> philosophical. But yeah, reading it literally is, I think it's not good for the play. I agree. It ruins everything. Yeah. So the, the just the idea that the, the cruelty of that, like literally, of course, rape is cruel. Yeah. And the fact that she's been trucking in these modes of enticement and keeping men at arm's length and toying with them in this fantastical way means that Stanley has to, like you say, you know, elementally, he has to force reality and cruelty upon her mm-hmm. by taking what was for her just um, a plaything and making it like th- this is the consequence of what you're doing. You know, you're toying with men and now you're going to get raped, you know, which is terrible, obviously. But it, but uh, like I said, it can only work symbolically that mm-hmm. she's been leading up to this. She's been dancing up to the line and he's going to force her to cross it, basically. Right. One thing that we should talk about that we really haven't is Mitch. Mitch and his mommy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm guessing you have a lot to say about that. <laughs> <laughs> What's really kind of a cool element not a cool element, but but a really interesting element of the film and the play is the fact that this cruelty is really pronounced for Blanche when it's directed at her and Stella, I guess, but only to the extent that she sees Stella as an extension of herself, maybe. But Stella and Stanley have like counterparts in the upstairs neighbors, you know, Eunice and uh, Steve. I really like the moment when Steve is like beating up Eunice or whatever and from downstairs Stella and Blanche are laughing at it so it it becomes like a like a a comic thing for them mm-hmm. like it becomes like the honeymooners or something like they're like ah oh, look at them and their their mm-hmm. punch and judy show or not that the honeymooners is ever I don't want to say that because I hate how people are down on the he honeymooners only, he only threatens to hit her <laughs> right in the kisser but and it's all uh, a joke it's all whatever yeah anyway, I know, I know. people think that that's like joking about abuse but it's not. i know i know i'm a, i'm like such a big honeymooners I, I, yeah i love the honeymooners <laughs> as well should we should watch that sometime we should but anyway yeah so it becomes like an object of fun for for them and in the same way we realize that like for mitch and I guess the the guy, the other apes at the poker table, poker, I hardly know her. Um, the, <laughs> the, the whole interplay between Stanley and Stella is also kind of a joke where they're like, oh, don't worry. Like he, he consoles Blanche and is like, oh, don't worry about it. Like they're crazy about each other. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like they all just think that this is OK, you yeah. know, and yeah. and Stella thinks that it's OK, which is just like really strange but i i like that contrast between what's going on with the upstairs neighbors and what's going on with stanley and stella because you you could see that in in blanche and stella's mind when there's a little bit of distance it becomes like they're watching you know the colorful neighborhood characters putting on some kind of comedy routine when it's happening to you it's it's very terrible and immediate even though stella bounces back from it quickly and is ready at stanley's beck and call but i guess what i'm interested in in that is the idea of mitch 
Mitch's character and Mitch is being like a spectator to what's going on with Stanley and Stella in the same way that Stella and Blanche are spectators to what's going on upstairs and how that kind of contrasts, I think, with his susceptibility to Blanche's charms. I don't know, maybe I'm inventing attention where there is none, but how can he be like, oh, Stella and Stanley, aren't they just so cute and it's okay. He could beat her up, but they really love each other and kind of be okay with that or even just be friends with Stanley and deal with Stanley and then also be taken in by Blanche. I mean, I guess you could say like it's because he's a mama's boy and there's something appealing about Blanche's nice girl that you could take home to mother routine. But then why is he hanging out with Stanley? Like, why is he part of Stanley's crowd? I don't understand that. Well, he likes to play poker. (laughs) Right. No, yeah. I mean, there is tension between him and Stanley, I think, from the very beginning. Mm. I guess it's towards the end when he's bitter that he accuses Stanley of bragging, right? Stanley says, luck is believing you're lucky. Mm. You, 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 brag, brag, bull, bull. But Mitch is involved in the very beginning. You know, he's pissed off by Stanley beating Stella, and he repeats this line about poker shouldn't be played in the house with women. He is kind of a foil to Stanley, but he's a weak one. You know, in the film and in the play, he comes across as quite bland. He endangers the play, in a sense, because he's boring. (laughs) And he Hmm. is, I think, maybe, maybe you disagree, but like when he first meets... Blanche, he, I think he's coming out of the bathroom and then he goes back to the bathroom, which very quickly after that, which you can only assume is, you know, he's pretending to need to go to the bathroom and then, cause he has to go through where Blanche's, where Blanche's to get to it. And then they have that conversation and she's acting quite oddly. And ultimately he says, you know, I've never, I've never met anyone like you before. You get the sense that he's commenting. He's aware of her oddness as a person, and he's commenting on it, but he's allowing himself to see that as charming Mm. because he needs to. I think they both have a vulnerability in common that's predicated on having lost someone, right? He he also had a girl that he... Yeah. She died. Yeah. Even though he doesn't seem that broken up about it, which is really weird. And he's also taking care of his, his mom in the way that Blanche took care of her relatives at, at Belle Reve. It's a believable portrayal for me that he would get taken in by Blanche because he is, in a way, they're both in a desperate circumstance. And there's that, you know, after she tells him that weird story about having a married a, someone who's gay and him killing himself, you know, you think Mitch might have said, okay, this is a little much for me. <laughs> right, uh, right. And instead, he says... To her, you know, you need someone, I need someone, could it be us? Something like that. So it's clear that they bond in their desperateness and in their need to have someone. Well, and yet his, not to rank pain, <laughs> but he's clearly so incapable of feeling as deeply as she does. I mean, he's clearly so beneath her. I think that's why he has to be, I mean, I agree that he's very bland, but I think that's really necessary because he has to be so obviously less than her. It's like she's she's slumming it emotionally in a way yeah (laughs) or intellectually in a way and she messes with him right she'll say in french to him do you it's not in the film but in the play you know do you want to sleep with me tonight (laughs) she says in french and then she'll say do you speak french that's too bad or that's a shame when he says he doesn't of course 
if he had understood, that's a very risky thing to do, right? If he understood that French phrase. Uh, I don't think she was taking a risk at all. That's yeah. The- so, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so she understands her audience. She does. But that just gives you an example of the fact that she, yeah, intellectually, she feels herself to be in a very superior position to him. And, and is. And yeah, is. I yeah. think, I think that's fair to say, you know, yeah. she's, she's rather, rather cultured. Um, of course, you know, Stella, too, though she's she's put that part of herself totally to sleep and anesthetized it. It awakens at certain moments in her diction. Like she'll start to speak more like like Stanley's speech when they're arguing will get more basic and, and she will get a little bit more formal in the way she speaks. I can't think of exactly where. But. That's a great observation that I hadn't noticed. And of course, we've talked about something in, in Blanche maybe that attracts her and repels her to Stanley. But there has to be something in Blanche that also attracts Stanley as it repels him, too. And is that, you know, he has to bring Stella down off the column. He has to bring Stella down to his level. I I take that as his desperate desire to not have anyone be superior to him, that he's very insecure. I mean, in the same way that Blanche seems to think that sex would be slumming it, he seems to... be excited by sex as a means to robbing someone of their status, which is not Mm. unusual, right? For men, because that's part of the dynamic, because like I said, femininity maps onto status and part of the dynamic there, at least sometimes is a, is destructive. It's like, it's wanting to defile or which is related to wanting to bring someone down to one's level. So you think that's innate in Stanley's niche? See, I'm looking for a reason why he's so insecure. Like, why can't he just let Blanche do her thing? Why does he have to stomp on her? Well, yeah, it's accentuated by his insecurity. <laughs> like, the, like, he's intolerant of having someone who's superior in class to him around. Does that mean that he has to be more aware of his lack of breeding than he lets on? Or there's, you know, like, what is making him ins- You know what I mean? Like, what's the engine for that? Because if he really is just an ape, and if he really doesn't care about any of the things that he's not supposed to care about, then he wouldn't be threatened by someone who is asserting superiority over him. In other words, what is the lack that he's perceiving in himself? Yeah, well, that's his one that's that's the sign of some basic refinement in him that he can <laughs> be insecure right like, right right and there's right. some slightly more than an ape but, right yeah but what is that is that what attracted him to stella in the first place and then when she, when they're fighting as you say is she using that as as a as leverage against him a little bit and keeping him a little bit in his place so it shows that she has a little bit of control over him not much, but that's a way for her to exert some kind of control is by exploiting that yeah. insecurity a little bit. You know, I think in a way that Stanley and Blanche have the same idea, which I kind of alluded to just a second ago, but about sex as either slumming it or bringing down someone down to one's level or mm. being defiled or defiling. And there's a great speech for Blanche near the end, but right before she's about to be taken away where she goes off into this fantasy that it's triggered by an unwashed grape. So Mm. part of, by the way, speaking of defilement, there's a scene in the middle of the play after Stanley has found out these rumors about Blanche, Stella asks him for a kiss and he says, not in front of Blanche as if the fact that she is now defiled, you know, he's the one who suddenly becomes modest before it was Blanche worried about the indecency and the lack of privacy. And then suddenly that turns 
and there's kind of a lady Macbeth element to Blanche, except it's about sex, right? Through the totally. whole play, she's always taking baths. Her name, you know, blanched a kind of artificial purifying. She's not really a virgin, but she's trying to accomplish that uh, retroactively by all sorts of cleaning uh, rituals. It comes out at the very end when she asks whether the grapes are washed. <laughs> Yes. And Eunice is like baffled by that, like the idea that anyone would wash grapes. And she says, they're from the French market. And Blanche says, that doesn't mean they've been washed. And then the cathedral bells chime. So you get this signal that, right, death is near, um, where death will, in this case, being, be, mean being taken to the mental hospital. Those cathedral bells, they're the only clean thing in the quarter. Well, I'm going now. I'm, I'm ready to go. And then she doesn't want to pass in front of the men. So they, they get her to wait. And that's when she tells the, she has the speech that's kind of predicated on, that's an association from the, the unwashed grape. So she says, I can smell the sea air. The rest of my time I'm going to spend on the sea. And when I die, I'm going to die on the sea. You know what I shall die of? She plucks a grape. I shall die of eating an unwashed grape one day out on the ocean. I will die with my hand in the hand of some nice-looking ship's doctor, a very young one with a small blonde mustache and a big silver watch. Poor lady, they'll say. The quinine did her no good. That unwashed grape has transported her soul to heaven. The cathedral chimes are heard. And I'll be buried at sea, sewn up in a clean white sack and dropped overboard at noon in the blaze of summer and into an ocean as blue as... Chimes again, my first lover's eyes. And that isn't in the film, we should say. Oh. That's all cut out. There's none of that. Okay, she does, she does ask about the grapes in the film, but we don't get that speech. Okay. We don't get the speech, no. So I really love that speech because it really digs into, it's really not emphasized in the play, the, the, the whole question of cleanliness and trying to, it's not like at some point Blanche is ever doing out damn spot or something like that. She's just taking a lot of baths <laughs> and there's her name. And we really don't get a lot of her obsessing about her own purity. She kind of makes a joke of the fact that she's pretending to have virginal values. Like she rolls her eyes over Mitch's shoulder when she says she has kind of old fashioned values, something like that. But here, this her relationship to desire is really, it's really articulated very well in this speech because this idea of a lack of cleanliness, like, you know, in this fantasy, she's basically killed by desire. So here again, we get this relationship mm. between death and desire because she's eating. She, she, you know, she's satisfying the desire to eat, but the thing that she eats is unclean. Mm. And yet it's by dying that she's purified. And it's also by dying that she gets a kind of cover for love, right? So it's, it's with the doctor who... This is a kindness of strangers moment, right? She's holding the hand of a nice looking doctor. And mm. it's, this is a kind of prophecy of what's about to happen with the doctor that shows up to take her away. Oh, of course. Yeah. <laughs> right. So she's enjoying the kindness of this ship doctor. And that's the guise under or the cover under which she can have a relationship. It can't be direct. It can't be consummated. It has to be in this indirect way where and, and now we see that that indirectness is connected directly to death death is like an alibi for her and it can purify her after the fact because we get to the point where she's sewn up in a clean white sack and dropped overboard this is a fantasy of the conditions under which she could i think enjoy her sexuality or enjoy her 
animal brutish Stanley-esque nature, hmm. which he can't do without this idea of the kindness of strangers and dying and a purification ritual and all that stuff. That's really great. Are we ready to drop ourselves into the ocean in a white sack? <laughs> I think so. The whole time that I, when I watched the film and now hearing you talk, I was thinking about that time that you came over and you were about to eat unwashed fruit. And I was like, Wes, you've got to wash that. And you're yeah. like, oh. And I was just as uncomprehending as in this. I'm like, what? You wash fruit? <laughs> the animals don't wash the fruit. Why should I? <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you to everyone who listened to this episode. I just wanted to say that if you're listening to this on the feed for the Partial Examined Life, you're not yet subscribed. You should subscribe to us directly by searching for us on the podcast app of your choice. And if you like us, a rating or review would help a lot. You can also find us at subtextpodcast.com, where you can subscribe to our email newsletter. To get ad-free episodes and a variety of bonus content, please subscribe at patreon.com slash subtext. Bonus content will include our after show, which we're calling Postscript, which consists of an extra 15 minutes of discussion following the regular episode. Sometimes we'll continue talking about the topic for that week. Sometimes we'll discuss what else we've been reading, writing, and thinking about. When the time comes, we'll be responding to listener emails. And sometimes we'll talk a little bit about ourselves. Subscribing will also get you the occasional full bonus show and several prequel episodes that I did with various guests. Send your feedback and episode requests to letters at subtextpodcast.com. You'll also find us on Facebook at Subtext Podcast and on Twitter at Enjoy Subtext. And once again, thank you for listening. Thank you.